0: Hi again everyone and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 68. Today on our show, Charlie Frank from the Reds Community Fund. I think their feeling at the time was Reds Country
1: had deteriorated from truly being this great 1970s regional draw to pretty much just being the 75 corridor between Cincinnati and Dayton. And I think they felt like they had really lost the market. I mean, if you look at the number of radio affiliates they inherited, it was like 35 or 40.
0: And now Joe Zerhuis has it up well, you know, well over 110. The Reds Community Fund is one of the most important parts of the Cincinnati Reds organization. Charlie Frank gives us the details about how the fund works, how it and the club has changed over the years, and why it's so important to the community and to the Reds, as well as how he we went from working for the Minnesota Timberwolves to leading this part of the Reds organization. It's a fascinating story. Be sure to listen for the promo code at the end of the episode for 20% off your next Cincy Shirts or OldSchoolShirts.com purchase. Now let's talk to Charlie Frank.
1: Cincinnati. I-N-C-I-N-N-E-T-I Cincinnati She came down from Cincinnati Just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at cincyshirts.com in Cincinnati
0: about the
1: Suarez deal compared to the Machado deal? How different are those two players? Yeah. In any conceivable way. I know.
2: I know. I'm, dude, you know, and I'm, the, I'm is the, the nicest dude ever. Oh, it's the best. The You know, and I'm such a homer that I'm always going to be the optimist, but man, it's like they've made some great pickups. I mean, Scooter, Iglesias, Dietrich. I mean, they've got those guys for nothing, man. I know, I
1: know. Well, they got to, you know, Iglesias. Hernandez, that, Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are great. They're all, they're all great picks. And Casale. I, I love mean, him. He, I know. All he does is hits. I know. Yeah. And he's another Vanderbilt guy. He fits right into their whole you know, system. That dude is so smart. He's such an interesting interview. Is yeah, really, he? Re- I don't know anything about he's him. He's really, really a well-spoken. We, we had him at uh, one of our Reds camps last year. He was outstanding. We were all like, dang, this guy's so good. We could listen to him all day. That's great. Yeah. Charlie Frank is our guest, my
2: friend. How are you? I'm good, Josh. Oh well, thanks for the invite. Uh, no, thank you for being here. Uh, we've had we've had uh Michael Anderson on recently and um you know, he was reiterating things that that I've talked about when your name has come up on the show before just like what an amazing job you do and what a, what a cool what a cool job you have and what a great job that you do at it. Because as somebody who grew up here who's always had baseball as my favorite sport, And has slowly started to see the crowd sort of migrate away and kids turn to, you know, basketball or or other sports like to have the job that the community fund does here re-energize the youth in this community, both in the more affluent neighborhoods and the inner city is just it's so fun to watch. And so thank you as a fan for like what you do for the community.
1: Well, that's awfully kind. I, uh, I agree with you. It is, uh, it's an incredible job. Like you, I grew up here and I grew up loving a handful of Cincinnati teams, but none like the Reds. And I was fortunate enough to have a grandfather who was a embedded part of the season ticket machine for over 50 years. And, you know, I got to probably go to 20, 30 games a year with him as a kid. And I, Played a lot as a kid, and I think I was fairly fluent in the game as a kid. So I would go and sit with my grandparents, and we knew everyone in our section of seats, which was uh, green two fifty three at Riverfront. And I remember, as like a ten and eleven year old, my opinion mattered to the eight to ten to twelve people there that we knew on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, and and that's um, that was a cool part of it. It just it wasn't just time with my grandfather; it was felt like community. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the unique natures of baseball is that it's a conversation sport uh, because of the the pauses in the game, which we used to treasure, and now, unfortunately, you know that's part of the reason why a lot of the young audience doesn't come to the game. But uh, you know, in terms of what we do to sustain the the game in the neighborhoods, it's it's hard work because even with incredible ownership and an incredible staff and terrific board and advisors, and, and you've been a part of that team. You know, it, we feel often like we're just putting a finger in the dike because the landscape is changing so quickly. You know, even with our youth academy and even with our field renovations and even with the hundreds of teams that we're engaged with each year, uh, it it still kind of feels like we're treading on quicksand. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's you know, there's so many factors uh, as to why it's changing. But I will tell you this: it, you know, when I ride with the Reds in '04. You know, the previous ownership group uh, really wasn't that engaged in on, on the nonprofit side. Uh, and they, you know, I mean, Carl Inner did as much for this community philanthropically as anybody, but had his own brand. And it was just a fledgling unit with the Reds anyway. And when the Castellini's arrived in 06, I mean, the transformation was instantaneous. It was unbelievable. Um, you know, but even in the 13 years that they've been here, I mean, the landscape's changed so much. Uh when you think of the popularity of youth soccer when you think of what's changed with you know lacrosse over the last 10 to 15 years yeah that's a big thing i never say,
2: realized yeah it, it really
1: is um and you know if 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 you were an objective you know viewer from somewhere else and and you were plopped or if you're a kid and you just were looking at a game to play and you see outfielders that may not be that active in a game, and you see lacrosse guys, you know, basically playing hockey off skates, I mean, you, you can understand to a certain extent. You know, and then the, the worry is, where's the next generation of fans going to come from? So that, that's really the one of the biggest parts of what we do. We're, we're trying to, you know, create fans for, for life. We're trying to develop a skill level because the diamond sports are like a learned language. I mean, once you know them... You don't have to be the biggest, the fastest, the strongest. So we're trying to develop that skill, and then with our academy at the at the tail end, we're trying to elevate skill for those that really have the ability to use it as a springboard to a college scholarship. Wow! So, what high schools did you go to? I went to Walnut Hills. <laughs> yeah, Walnut Hills. Yeah.
2: I don't think I knew that you were raised here. Yeah, because I knew I knew you from the community fund. Like that's how I I was introduced mm-hmm. to you. And then I had known that you had come here from the Minnesota Timberwolves. Right. I had always assumed that, like, you ended up in Cincinnati from that job, but not that you had come back to Cincinnati.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, those family's got deep ties roots here.
2: And you went to Northwestern, you said? I did. And um, what, what what did
1: you want to be? Did you want to be in? I knew as a kid, I, I, was, a, I was a decent athlete and I was probably a better than average baseball player. And, and made my neighborhood's not whole team at the time, which was sort of the step up from rec ball. And uh, so, I, you know, I was a decent player, but I knew early on not good enough. And, uh, and I was really drawn to the broadcast side. You know, the old Fleetwood records, the, uh, the 72 Reds record with Al Michaels at the mic. Uh, I, I think I could have recited that at some point. Verbatim and probably pretty close to the 75 and 76, you know, those L- the, the yeah. LPs where they had the regular season yeah. highlights on the one side and the uh, postseason highlights on the other. Yeah, I mean, that's and having great broadcasters here, obviously, you, you know, Al Michaels is only here three or four years, but having Marty and Nuxall um, and, and just all the the great TV broadcasters over the years. For whatever reason, that was the piece that spoke to me the most. So the time I rolled into Evanston, Illinois as a freshman at Northwestern, you know, one of the first days I showed up at the radio station. I worked at the radio station there for all four years. That's probably as much a part of my education as anything in the classroom.
2: Wow. And you wanted to do like play by play or
1: yeah, I wanted I wanted to do play by play. Uh did a ton of it in college. Um, you know, I I thought I was okay uh, at it, but I was involved in, you know, sort of operating it. By the time I left, I was, you know, the sports director for the radio station. I also, you know, did some, you know, did some news, did some overnight, you know, stuff, did some jazz, but, uh, you know, clearly my, the biggest interest was the sports piece. After my junior year, I, I went to live with my brother in Boston and I, I got an internship at WRKO radio. RKO was right across the street, virtually from Fenway, and they had the Celtics' flagship rights, and they were an affiliate for the Red Sox, even though they were across the street. And they had invested in about this thirty-pound thing called a cellular phone, and uh, and I would take it with me over to Fenway, and uh, and all the players would come over because they were just so fascinated. They thought literally I <laughs> dropped from Mars Are you from or something. From the future, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we, we uh, so I helped produce that summer a six to eight p.m. talk show on RKO. The sum it was the summer of '86. So uh, literally my first week on the job, the Celtics had just knocked off the Rockets for their 16th title. They they were they drafted uh, second, and the and the Cavaliers drafted Brad Doherty, and the Celtics erupted because Len Bias was sitting there. And then, I mean, it couldn't have been my third or fourth day on the job. The next morning, when you know Len Bias had died, and I will never ever forget the darkness of of that place, um, and and just the, I mean, that's set, I just the, I, I still gives me chills to think about. So it was the Celtics coming off a title. It was uh, Len Bias's, you know, drafting and tragedy. It was the Red Sox of '86. It was Roger Clemens, and I mean that was a the year they oil can boyd and rich gedman and um, wade
2: boggs wade
1: boggs and yeah uh dwight evans i mean that was a that was such a fun team and of course that's a team that lost in seven games to the mets on the buckner jim rice was there jim team? rice was still on that team and productive yeah so um so i got to cut my teeth as an intern on, on that stuff and then they jumped to weei where they're still uh, where the celtics still are um I think uh, you know there's EEI is still a talk show giant in Boston, so they hired me coming out of school, and I had the choice: do I want to chase the on air, or do I want to go and work you know behind the scenes doing you know Celtics production primarily? And I was working on a syndicated NFL show, and I had a buddy that went to Northwestern who was sort of in the same boat, and he took an on air job doing TV in Junction City, Kansas, and I said, yeah, I think I think I'm going to go in production in Boston. <laughs>
2: So how did you what what? Where did you go from Boston?
1: Two years uh, in Boston, and then one of the NFL broadcasters who was part of that syndicated show was Kevin Harlan, oh, yeah. who was the voice of the Chiefs. And now I'm sure many people he's know so him. So great, yeah. he's incredible. I mean, not only is he still one of the top NBA guys on Turner, but he's you know one of the top NFL, NFL guys yeah. on CBS. And you know, you pop in your NBA 2K, and he's you know, the voice of half the yeah. video games that my kids play. So, um, okay, that I play, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, so <laughs> Are you a gamer, no, not really. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm so bad at 2K, um, and I never get better at it, I don't get it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, my son could give me a 24-hour tutorial, and he would beat me by 30 if he were, like, the worst team in the league. So, yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a capacity-building thing. Um, so two years in Boston, and then Kevin had taken the job to be the voice of the Timberwolves on radio and TV. And we'd gotten to know each other a little bit on uh, just through this NFL you know, show that I was involved with weekly. And I put my... In that ring, and because I was working with the Celtics, I mean, I was the, the you know the, the junior guy on their production team of two people. Um, but it, it uh, that gave me a huge head up or leg up because Celtics were a regional network similar to what the Timberwolves were aspiring to be, and the Celtics were a you know forty-five minute pregame show and took live calls at halftime and. It was, it was big time, so the Timberwolves were interested in that. I flew up there within a few days, and within two weeks, I had moved up there and spent 11 years with that franchise as it was getting off the ground, which is, I mean, I, I feel like I've, I've really had two lives in sports. I had the, the NBA years, and now I've had the Reds years, and I am just so beyond lucky to have cracked the code twice. It's a hard industry to get lucky in once. And the life I lived in Minnesota, I wouldn't trade for anything. It was such a terrific group of creative marketing and salespeople. Everything was in-house. Um, yeah, Christian Lever. We yeah. won't talk about that. Um, he was my favorite basketball Oh, player. my God. Well, the year we drafted later in 92, uh, we had the worst record in the league. The worst that we could have done in the lottery was third. We ended up third, and Orlando took Shaq, and Miami took Alonzo Mourning. So and at the time we didn't realize how unlucky we were really because Leitner was off to the dream team that summer. So we thought, ah, right. oh, there's not a huge difference between these three guys, but there was a huge difference between those three guys. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But yeah, so um, Minnesota so what did you for do 11 years. Minnesota. Ago. Well, when I arrived, uh, I was the broadcast manager. Within about a month and a half, the guy that hired me. Left for a job with the Houston Rockets, so I became the broadcast director, and I was about twenty-three or twenty-four, something like that. <laughs> um, within a couple of years, so I, I came to produce radio and sort of oversee the department. And then uh, for a couple of years, I also traveled and produced TV. The years I produced TV, the play-by-play team was uh, Kevin Harlan and Kevin McHale, <laughs> and our team was terrible. And the broadcasts were literally stand-up comedy. I mean, I wish I could cue them up and. And watch them with you. I mean, they, they uh, it, it, it didn't feel like a job at all. And we were traveling. You know, I virtually was at every road game because we broadcast most of the games. So I was leaving Minnesota in the wintertime, which was never a bad thing. Uh, it was such a blast. And then about five years in, there was an ownership change. And it looked like we were going to move to New Orleans. I remember the, um, the staff was having some debaucherous party when that whole deal got... Uh, When the plug got pulled on that deal and we ended up staying and we were sold to a Minnesotan named Glenn Taylor, who still owns the team. And when Glenn bought the team, they promoted me to director of and then vice president of communications. So the last five or six years there, I was one of the VPs there overseeing all their in-house production, creative PR community stuff. And that's kind of where the community bug hit. But we were also for four years there. We produced the NBA's Game of the Week uh, and then all their playoff coverage out of our studio. Oh, really? Yeah. So NBA radio uh, was the precursor to uh, ESPN radio picking it up. So my boss in Boston went to the NBA, Tom Corelli, and became the the vice president of broadcasting there. And we worked closely together. And when they decided to take the radio rights in-house, they – they figured it didn't matter where they were based. And because I was a protege of his and he knew that we had built this studio to spec, um, you know, and we, and we had probably next to the Celtics at the time, the biggest, baddest pregame show and ambitious, you know, production. Uh, they allowed us to, uh, to bid for, and then we ultimately won the, uh, the rights. So, we worked with Tom and his team, and um, I tell people all the time. Not the very first event we worked was the All Star Game in Orlando in '92, and that may sound a little nondescript, but that was the game where Magic came back and played for the first time after his uh, announcement. AIDS announcement, yeah. and scored 37 and dropped in a you know 40 foot three pointer at the buzzer, and had all the players hugging him. I mean, it, it was beyond sports. It was it was an un, unreal scene. Uh and then the finals of you know, I covered all six games of the finals that year, which was Bulls, Blazers. And game two of that series is where Jordan went off for all the three pointers and gave Ahmad Rashad sort of that
2: I don't know what's I don't going know what's on. going on yeah. look.
1: And that was the old Chicago Stadium and to this day I've never heard anything louder than that. <sighs> you know. So the next year I got to cover Bulls and and Sons and Barkley's MVP year, and then the next two years after Barkley retired, or after uh, Jordan retired the first time, you know, we had the Rockets tie. I mean, it was just an uh, incredible experience for fans. That friends. era was my favorite oh. of the NBA. Oh, that was, you know, the Reggie Miller-Knicks era. It was... Clyde Drexler. Drexler, right yeah, yeah. Elijah Wong, yeah all those guys. Dominique. yeah. yeah. Sean Kemp, oh man! Yeah, it was uh, so it was it was fun to be in the NBA at that time, and and to then at the end of the Timberwolves season, which predictably was about mid-April. Um, <laughs> you know, we had another six weeks. We'd cover every game of the we con- we'd cover a game of the week, and then a co- and then every game of both conference finals, and then the finals and the draft, and um, so yeah, having that for in one year, we even produced the Vikings. broadcast. there was a year that we produced Timberwolves, Vikings, and the NBA, you know, literally, we were living in the basement all year. But you were owned by the
2: T-Wolves, or you worked for the Yeah, T-wolves, we were like, in-house. contracted that Yeah, out yeah. we guys? were kind of, yeah,
1: like our own entity there in the basement of Target Center.
2: How cool is that?
1: It was really a blast.
2: And then, um, man, that was, that, would have been, that was like the golden era.
0: Did the team start in the Target Center, or were they still in Bloomington? Oh, they started, that's a great question, P.F.
1: They started in uh, the Metrodome. And to this day, they're still the only winter sport that's drawn over a million fans because the marketing people at the Timberwolves, to me, are were, were as progressive, creative, and tireless as the marketing people now with the Reds. I mean, it. it um, I mean, we probably averaged 30,000. We had games against the Lakers, the Pistons were the defending champs, where we draw forty-five. Um, our coach was Bill Musselman. You remember ah, Mus? yeah,
0: A Former Cavaliers coach. Former
1: Cavaliers coach. Yeah. Uh, just a complicated, colorful guy, but <laughs> uh, so much fun for two years. And his, his whole deal was he didn't want to deal with rookies. He brought in these CBA guys that were beholden to him because they had played for him in the CBA. And they, they were relentless. They had no talent. But we went 21 and 20 at home. Beat the Celtics, beat the Lakers. I mean, it was we had no business being competitive, and they were they were the team was pure grit and and even though the ceiling was pretty low, the fan base just loved them. That year was unbelievable at the Metrodome, and then Target Center opened in the second year.
2: Hmm. and so how did you end up at the reds then you just were you always looking to come back here or was it just sort you know of stars
1: aligned or? <sighs> uh, uh, really neither i mean I, I thought at some point just because the city is so important to me I, you know when i was gone at the the reds the Bengals, you see that stuff meant even more to me i mean to a fault i think i used to scare some of my friends uh, i remember in 90 during the world series i, I you know i could we, we were timbrels had a Preseason game, and I'm trying to do my job. As uh, I think it was game, it was game three of the World Series, and they finally just said, "Just leave," because you're annoying. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it was uh, it, emotionally, it just um, yeah, it was hard for me to kind of keep my focus. Which now that I I, I say this publicly is is terribly embarrassing and very dysfunctional. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I I figured, you know what, it may not be a bad thing. And, and friends told me if you ever move home. The one thing you should never consider doing is working for the rats. You'd be a basket case. But then um, health situation. My mother, my wife's father were both fading fast uh, almost at the same time. And my wife had a marvelous job. She's a veterinarian working at the University of Minnesota. And I think I was still considered young and upwardly mobile, I guess, with the Timberwolves, a pretty young VP and doing stuff at the league level and uh, and we really, really surprised our universes up there when we decided together that we felt like we needed to move home. And then I made a horrible transaction with my wife. I said, all right, well look, when one of us gets a, a good job offer, then you know, then this thing is on. Well she's a veterinarian, it took about eleven minutes. You know, mm-hmm. jumping from one market in sports to another is not easy. So that was a you know that was a tough stretch. And finally we just we moved home. And I stayed consulting on with the Timberwolves for a year. I traveled back and forth, and then uh, my boss in with the NBA, uh, as I was still kind of getting my legs in Cincinnati, he kept me on as a part time guy. He sent me around about 50, 60 games to you know to be their broadcast coordinator on site for you know basically a game every weekend, which wasn't so bad. Yeah. Um, you know and, until um, until I got a couple opportunities here. So, what was it like? Uh, you know when the
2: the chance to work for the Reds came in. Was it in the back of your head that, like, you know, is it like meeting your hero? Like, you know, you seeing how the sausage gets
1: made? You know, I mean, the, the the Timberwolves weren't a big organization. So, you know, for most of the 11 years there, there was a lot of sausage being made. So hmm. I think some of that sheen had worn off. Okay. I'll tell you what, though. I mean, the difference between an NBA clubhouse and an MLB clubhouse you might not think about it. It's it's night and day. I mean, if you're in the NBA, first of all, you know, so many of those kids are coming from the inner city and so many of them are coming from a year of college. You know, Stephon Marbury, for example, played a year at Georgia Tech. He was the last of the Marbury brothers and the other ones had crashed and burned. There was so much pressure on that kid and trying to relate to his world, uh, you know, from a corporate perspective. And he's, a, you know, he was great. You know, Garnett, they were great, but there was a, Huge gap there, you know. And again, if you're a top six, top 10 NBA pick, you're going to get paid and you're, you know, you're going to play MLB. Man, even if you're a Harper or a Strasburg, there's no guarantee, you know. So the humility that comes along with having to ride the buses and the baseball draft, you know, that when MLB rolls their draft out, I mean, you may know of a handful of those names if you're a true fan. Most of the time, you don't, right? You know, the NFL, I mean, what is it, 18 days now that the draft goes on? I mean, so you know, I mean, it's, it's such a difference. So that, that was a really stark difference was just the, you, you know, how, how much easier it was, how much easier it felt to kind of navigate the clubhouse. But, um, you know, I kind of, you know, I, um, I know a lot of people looked at me kind of sideways when I just sort of on a dime walked away from a really good job in a profession where it's really hard to get a really good job at a young age. And I, and I did not realize how hard it would be to kind of land on my feet. And, so, I mean, I looked at a lot of different ways to get in. I talked to the Reds. I talked to the Bengals. I tell the story. I mean, Kevin Harlan, the Timberwolves broadcaster at the time, was paired with Sam Weish at CBS. Yeah. And when I confided in Kevin that Amy and I were moving back home, he put a call into Sam. Sam put a call into Mike Brown. Mike Brown called me the next day. I'll never forget. I'm driving into work in Minnesota, you know, 994, and the phone rings the, in the morning, Mike Brown, Mike Brown inviting me to lunch, you know, when I'm in town in two weeks. And I sat down with Mike Brown probably for hour and a half. And when he heard my wife was a vet, you know, probably the last 45 minutes talked about dogs. I mean, the guy was as decent and I was, I didn't know what to expect, but I didn't expect that. And, um, and nothing ever clicked there, but the guy gave me the time of day and, you know, and, and, and asked a lot of questions about where I had been and asked a lot of questions about ownership of the Timberwolves. I'll never forget that. You know, so when, when I hear some of the conversation out there, I mean, I, I, I tell as many people as I can. Mike Brown didn't have to do that for two minutes. Um, I didn't get as lucky getting in other doors. Um, I ended up working uh, with Greg Darbyshire for uh, about a year and a half. Greg's made an incredible success with Pro Camps. Oh yeah, uh, and, and at the time was working with the Anthony Munoz Foundation and he helped launch the Marvin Lewis Community Fund. And he um, was just getting uh, uh, agency off the ground at the time before pro camps really took off. So I spent about a year and a half with them uh, doing some local stuff, doing their Vince Carter camps in uh, Florida and Toronto, getting the Wally Zerbiak camp off the ground up in the Twin Cities, which had some value to them since I was still connected up there, and um, so did that for a year before the community fund position opened up.
2: Was the was the focus on the community fund, uh, you had some experience of it in Minneapolis, but as far as making that your full-time focus, was that a tough transition or not really? Not really. Like, did you have a vision then? Because it's, like, so easy to see what the community fund has become yeah. from your hard work, but, like, was that... Was what it is now always the vision that you were working toward or just did the growth of it sort of dictate? You,
1: you know, I have to give a lot of credit to people like Owen Rassman and Kitty Strauss and Chris Wasco from P&G. Kitty was with the Chamber, Owen, a longtime R.W. Baird guy and mutual friend of ours. Uh, the reason
2: and, that this podcast is happening right now. <laughs> I'll say it. He's the reason yeah. I have a t-shirt company, Owen Rassman. Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, you, there, you can't describe the type of person Owen is. I remember one time at a event, you did a uh, auction item for Owen Rassman of something along the lines of, you know, uh, the Rasmussen
2: experience, yeah,
1: 20 hours on your feet, cutting other people's lawn, helping other people move, yeah. uh, doing something for everyone else, still being a good husband and friend and, yeah. and then rinsing and repeating the next day and yeah. not wanting a lick of credit for it. I mean, but Owen and, and the original board, Owen's been the only president of the community fund, though. community fund came on board in 2001, and uh, typically you see, you know, officers roll off every few years. Owen's been the president since the beginning. And the Castellinis at first were like, really? Why? What, what's this all about? And within about a month, they're like, we get it. Don't change it. You know, this is a very, very special, unusual person. But their vision right away was, we're not going to be all things to all people. We're really only going to focus on baseball. And most other sports nonprofits, they you know it's they, they do maybe a little bit of education, a little bit of fitness, nutrition, it might be anti-bullying, it might be you know education on domestic violence. I mean, you know, they're all the whatever the current yeah you know social issues are, and that's a perfectly good model. But in Cincinnati, it was determined that this was going to be really baseball specific, and interestingly, even as it got off to a more more of a a gradual start with previous ownership uh, when the Castellinis came in. The Castellinis had had, you know, a share of the Texas Rangers, a share of the Baltimore Orioles. They were the second biggest percentage owners of the Cardinals for a decade, you know, other than the DeWits. And they had seen some of the other sports nonprofit models. And when they arrived, what they wanted was something that was specific to the game. So while they were busy making a lot of very, very smart and immediate strategic changes to the overall business, they saw sort of the the narrow focus of the community fund and they said, that's what we want. And I had a meeting with Bob that might've been four or five days after their announcement in late January of 06. And I've never experienced anything like it, where Bob asked me a series of questions over about 20 minutes about, you know, why our ceiling was a little bit low at the time. And he proceeded to not knock down, to literally blow up every barrier that there was. Immediately wanted us going into the clubhouse and and raising money from the players. Immediately wanted us to be a central part of how the Reds went out and sold corporate dollars. Immediately, uh, I mean literally by the end of that day, he and I had co-signed a challenge letter to the other shareholders about raising money for the fund, which became... Our, you know, our $450,000 that started our whole field renovation program that year. I mean, that year we went out and helped renovate over 60 ball fields because of that letter. I, I mean, I've never seen it, anything like it. And he, five days on the job, he just spent two days in New York, and he understood every key principle that, you know, that I had been studying there for two years, and he understood it in 10 minutes. Wow. And Phil is absolutely the same way. It's it's very inspiring.
2: So, um, take us through where the community fund was at that time, what types of things you're doing, because in terms of baseball, you have become more of a, like you do serve a lot of, it's not just inner city or miracle league or, you know, you do a lot more than just help kids play baseball.
1: Yeah. You know, we, we actually, our board at the time had a vision for a, a permanent complex, and we wanted, with the complex, to build a Miracle League field, you know, ball field for children with disabilities. And we had picked out a site, uh, Camp Park over in Westwood, uh, behind the old Mercy Hospital there, right off Glenway Avenue. And we had architects' designs. I mean, we had all the storyboards. And, uh, and that thing, you know, was about a $3 million vision that we had. And... Phil, very demonstrative, I mean, it was very animated that summer. I remember a meeting where, you know, where he was, again, very animated with our board. And he said, we're not ready yet. You know, we want you, we want the community fund to be at our hip. We need to reestablish Red's Country. And to do that, we need the community fund to be investing in ball fields, investing in youth baseball and softball wherever we go. I think their feeling at the time was Red's Country had deteriorated from truly being this great 1970s regional draw to pretty much just being the 75 corridor between Cincinnati and Dayton. And I think they felt like they had really lost the market. I mean, if you look at the number of radio affiliates they inherited, it was like 35 or 40 and now Joe Zerhuis and has it up, you know, well over 110. I mean, you, you, know, the, 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 you know, the caravan might be one leg. Now it's, you know, four different luxury buses. <laughs> yeah. You know, Reds Fest was on ice for two years, you know, under the auspices of the fan. And it's true that the, the Duke Energy Center was, was being re- rebuilt. Um, but when it came back, it, it didn't, you know, it didn't look like a card show anymore. I mean, it looked like the biggest, baddest fan festival in any sport. You know, so all, all these things consistent to how Phil and Bob have rebuilt the brand authentically, you know, the community fund. And this is something that I will always be awed by and certainly selfishly grateful for. I mean, you know, Phil Phil would tell me, uh, he said, you know, Charlie, you used to be tolerated. The community fund used to be tolerated and now you are celebrated and promoted. Um, and and the, the Castellini's got it. And they'd seen it in other MLB stops that – Um, community shouldn't just be an obligatory box to check because the local taxpayers help build your stadium, which is an irrefutable fact, you know, so the teams owe the community something. Um, so yeah, you can check the box and have some fundraisers and write some checks, but you know, that's a pass through model. And the Castellinis really saw the value in doing something substantial on their own uh, and putting their money into it. If they put their own money in, if they ask their players to put money in, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to ask your sponsors than to follow suit. And, and what they were doing was building the game um, and, and seeing that the industry needed that effort. So really, not that it's a complex model, but I think it was very visionary that, that they wanted us to be by their side as they went about the process of reengaging the region and knowing that ball fields and youth team support was going to be a vital ingredient for it. And that wasn't lip service. You know, every community needed their, you know, you need Chillicothe night, you know, you need uh, Red's Fest, you need the caravan, you need the radio network, but you also need authentic, you know, baseball and softball investment in the communities. And I think the good, <laughs> the good fit was, um, you know, I'm, I'm not your best sales guy, but I'm, um, I, th- I think I, I know the region and I really enjoy the relationship part of it. I've really enjoyed getting, to you know, I mean, we've worked with the same people at Metro Parks in Louisville now for 15 years, you know, uh, so many of these communities now have connections. So many of these youth organizations, guys like Lorney Starkey up in Madisonville, he's been leading this Madisonville Braves organization for four decades, you know, Charles Kelly in Evanston, Fred Carnes in the West End. I mean, these, these guys are legends. And, the, you know, I don't think they really felt a touch point with the franchise before. And I think that's where the Reds felt that they had a, you know, a, a someone in, in my role who could be a steward. And then the more resources they gave me, the more ability we had to really bring in an incredible staff of people like Matthew Wagner and Jerome Wright, Sarah Ingram and Colleen Cheek, all of the people that, that literally lift our programs and fundraisers on their shoulders.
2: Um, so you had an original plan for a $3 million facility. And what was the final uh, total for the uh, Urban Youth Academy?
1: Well, the first time we sold them on it, it was about 3500 But when we took it to ownership the first year in year, it was $5 million. Um, it came in at about 7677 7, 7. And part of that was Phil didn't want the building to look like a shoebox. And part of it was we didn't want to have concrete pads and aluminum bleachers for our stadium field. So as our fundraising took off, um, you know, Phil's imagination went with it and the rest of us kind of hung on for dear life. Although Phil is one of those scary left brain, right brain guys, you know, he, he, he has the vision, but he also has the fiscal understanding and responsibility, which I, I haven't, I've worked for some really talented people or with and for some talented people, but nothing like Phil seriously just how smart and grounded he is at the same time. It's scary. But uh, yeah, so we that $3 million idea at OSCAMP ultimately became a $7.5 million reality. And that thing was intended to be completed in conjunction with the All-Star game in 15. And uh, we cut the ribbon on it in August of 14. So we got out ahead of it. And our construction partner, Kokosing, said, we want to probably want to speed this up a little bit. And uh, and Phil agreed. And, you know, Red's made us a loan that we paid back early for that. And, uh, yeah, it's um, and, and you know what? Uh, Phil said, I want you to ride this thing as hard as you can and we will have your back and we will help you with the fundraising needed to make sure that it, it you know, it makes these kids feel like they have the best in class and we keep it looking great every day. And Major League Baseball donated a million, right? Yeah, MLB put in a million and a half. Uh, P&G was the first one on board. They put in two million, you know. Um, <laughs> Jody so Allen, awesome. Aaron Eisel. We we never would have gotten it done without them. And and P&G made, you know, we had been dancing with MLB for a handful of years. Um, and they were great. Uh, but P&G was the first to really put their foot down and say, we believe.
2: And. There's very few teams that have a facility like this, correct?
1: Yeah, they're um, you know they're roughly about a half a dozen now. The original one was built in 2006 in South Central LA, but MLB built it and the Dodgers and Angels don't operate it, so it got built and then MLB staffs it, and they also operate one in New Orleans. There, there's a really fine one in Houston.
2: <laughs> That's so interesting to me that you take like a city like Los Angeles, but then you have two teams there and neither one of them have a hand in it. And then another one's in a city that doesn't even have an MLB team.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting model. I think Bud Selig felt that this was something that he wanted to do as his tenure was wrapping up. I could sit here all day and not give enough credit to Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan was the one consistently in the commissioner's ear telling him, you complain that we are losing the urban audience. You complain that our African-American participation is diving. You invest billions of dollars in development everywhere else throughout the world. You're doing nothing in your backyard. We're just sitting here and doing nothing. And Joe was right about that. And Joe, I mean, there, there would be no Youth Academy, no Urban Youth Academy model without Joe Morgan. Really? And Joe helped us fundraise. And Joe told us, I will never forget when we brought Joe out to the Roselawn Park, which a lot of people in the area will remember was a very active park before you know <coughs> we put our stake down there. Joe came and met with us, and he listened, and he said, I will help you, but I will only help you if this is the biggest, best, most well-run facility of its type. If you guys are half-baked, <coughs> I'm not in. And he stuck with it, and, you know, it's, you know he... The day we cut the ribbon, and we had Joe Morgan and Frank Robinson and Joey Votto and Brandon Phillips and Jay Bruce and Ron Oster and Dave Parker. I mean, and Mayor Cranley. And it was big time. And Joe got up and spoke. You know, we unveiled the Joe Morgan Way sign for the street. And Joe wept. It was, I mean, I could live a few lifetimes and it's going to be pretty up there. I up there was a moment.
2: So for people who don't know, tell tell folks what what types of things that, all that you do at the Urban Youth Academy.
1: Well, you know, uh, on one hand, we're we're trying to make baseball and softball accessible. So uh, we run all types of programs in the fall and winter. They're free of charge. Everything from, uh, you know, very early age group uh, fundamental clinics to uh, individual training, uh, strength and conditioning, speed and agility, coaches training, umpire training. We work with the University of Cincinnati and offer uh, free homework help in any class to kids six to 18 doesn't matter subject uh, that's provided by the university of Cincinnati and their school of education. Uh, That's been a partnership now of over 10 years. You know, uh, Colleen cheek from our staff uh, runs a seminar program that's required for the RBI kids. That's 20 teams that are, are, you know, select teams that all wear reds uniforms that have year round responsibilities when it comes to grades Uh, attending, you know, some of our training sessions uh, community service, coaching younger age groups. George Foster now in his Foster Force is part of our RBI program. So George, we're so excited to have George as part of our our coaching family now. So twenty teams make the academy their home, but uh, we also have something that we call the Joe Morgan League, which is twelve of the uh, longstanding, predominantly urban baseball organizations that uh, that we invest additional dollars in. So they play a lot of their games. Up at the Academy, uh, Walnut Hills High School in Purcell Marion, uh, play games up there. They're grandfathered there. Uh, That was their home complex before we arrived. We average, uh, this year we had over 2,000 card-carrying members, so 2,000 kids that use the complex free of charge. Turnstile count was well over 15,000 just from September through April. Um, so there really are very, very few days where it's not buzzing. And, you know, from a, it's from a seasonal standpoint, you know, we, we do experience the grind of the regular season with working all the home games with our Split the Pot fundraiser and, and all the things that we require from the clubhouse for all of our events and programs. And then literally the season ends and we roll right into the academy season. So, you know, we really have the fall and winter season, which is our busy indoor season. And we bring in people like Destiny Martinez, USA Softball star, uh, Bronson Arroyo, Tom Browning, you know, Tucker Barnhart, we, you know, we, we'll have a series of, 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 uh, weekend clinics all throughout the off season. And then, you know, primarily during the, the summer and spring months, it's outdoor baseball and softball. We have four fields, two of them are turf, you know, any kid of any age, baseball, softball, boy, girl, can play on f- three of our four fields, so very versatile, you know, footprint there. Yeah, and and just tons and tons of games. We have some four fee activities. Our Reds baseball camps have a, new, a number of camps there. They're outstanding. Uh, we we have a number of you know tournaments where teams can pay to get in. Although most of our urban teams will get a, a complimentary pass there. So very very few days or weekends that it's it's not a, a hive of activity.
2: So you mentioned split the pot. There's a lot of different. Uh, ways that the community fund gets its budget so split the pot and then you have like your benchmark events right like red legs run marty golf reds fest right so what what are all the different ways that the money c- comes into the community fund or or how people that that would like to donate can
1: well anybody could donate anytime if you go to reds.com slash community There is, uh, I mean, there's a donate now uh, option that you know gives you basically what a dollar level will you know, hundred dollars can you know allow one kid to play baseball for a year. Thousand dollars can provide a a meal for a Reds rookie success league day at one of our five sites throughout the region, uh, which is another free program to teach the game to six to twelve year olds. So you, you know you can do it online. Basically, it's four buckets. Split the Pot's been an incredible success story for us, as it has been for virtually every team in sports.
2: Can people people do it from home now?
1: They can, yeah. So if you're 18 and older and in the state of Ohio, for all home games, if you go to Reds5050.com, you can not only play at home, but if you're at the game and you don't see one of our neon dry-fit green shirt-clad and they're hard to miss because they, they do a great they, job of
2: going up and down. They really
1: do, and that's in the heat of the summer, man. That's uh, it's not an easy job. But if you're in your seat uh, and you don't see anybody, or if you don't, because uh, typically our our sellers at the ballpark we only take cash. Um, but you can use a credit card at Reds fifty fifty com. So if you're sitting in your suite or your seat or you're walking the concourse and you want to play but you don't have any cash on you, just pull it up online in a second or two. You know you can uh, you can buy your ticket how cool is that it's awesome so you get split the pot we have split the pot which we you know which I always kind of simplify and say that's about a quarter of our 2.5 million dollar revenue target another quarter of it depending on you know the contract status of our, our club is going to be uh, player donations and again when I arrived that number was about five to ten thousand it was Griffey helping out a little bit that was about it and when Bob and Phil Castellini and their group came in. Immediately, they started strongly urging the players to, uh, to make a 1% donation when they were signing their, you know, whatever new contract. It's not something that we would put, you know, for a rookie. And, but once you either sign your deal in the arbitration-eligible years or once you're beyond that six-year window and you're signing your – you know, when uh, Jay Bruce arrived, he and his agent sat down with myself and a couple of other Reds front office people and said, here's our vision – We really want to get involved in the community. We want to do hospital visits. We want to do Red's rookie visits. And when we get, you know, a a contract extension that we hope we do, if Jay plays well, which he did and he did, um, then we want to do a field. And, you know, we want to name it for Jay's sister. And he laid out all these things that they wanted to do, which was brilliant. You know, we've, we've had success working with people from Jay Bruce to Francisco Cordero. We have Cordero Field. Yeah. You know, uh, down towards Independence, Kentucky, um, the Pioneer Park. I am so impressed with the relationship now that we have with Joey Votto. Uh, as, as you would guess, I mean, as meticulous and thoughtful he is, as he is about things, this guy is so heartfelt about what he does through us. Um, our building at the Academy is the Joey Votto Training Center because of his donation, not just of dollars, but, I mean, when he's in town in the off season, especially, he's there. And he doesn't want the show to stop. Um, he wants to plug into what's going on. I just, I love and that I so mean, much. and um, I had the privilege recently of being with him for a children's hospital visit, and I don't want to go much into it, other than telling you that it is the reason that I think I wanted to get into this industry because of the good that sports can do when you got the right people doing it. And you know, when I when I get frustrated, if you know at Yasiel Puig, because of something on the field, it doesn't take long to think this guy came this guy took six trips to get here from Cuba. you know, I think if he pops up, it's okay you know <laughs> right? um yeah. you know this guy has lived a life and had obligations that nobody nobody can understand yeah you know um th- 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 these are pretty good people we have in that clubhouse. Joey's unbelievable um. Just so impressed uh, with, with how he goes about things. So our the clubhouse is now 25%. We've built good relationships there. The players, many of them have done field projects. The, the ownership and the baseball front office have been so diligent and consistent about making that a priority. They don't have to do that. Trust me, the agent, last thing that he wants to tell his player is, oh, and I just gave 1% of your money away to something called the Reds Community Fund. But you know, from from Bob Miller to Dick Williams, you know, to Nick Crawl, we have had people that have fought for this. And Bob Castellini and Phil Castellini don't suggest it as a possibility; they suggest it as a culture piece that they want to build, and they have. Wow. So that that's that's a bucket, and uh, and we treat them like any major donor. You know, we we try to communicate with them professionally, responsibly, so they know what their money's doing. Um, and not drive them nuts and another quarter of it as you mentioned is our events and events are hard business man they're um, they take a lot of human capital uh, they really have to get you to a certain result before it it makes more sense than just going out and asking for it the juice is worth the squeeze exactly right and i know Jenny knows that well yeah you know so uh, but red Lakes run is one that we've been doing now 18 years wow. first year of it was old riverfront last year of Old Riverfront, last month of Old Riverfront. Um, and we've been doing Reds Fest now again since 06 and the poker tournament and now the bingo event and those proceeds. The Marty Brennan Golf Classic now is, you know, that, that rolled out back in 2005. You know, so here we are all those years later. And that's not only a fundraiser, but no work event or fundraiser should be that much fun.
2: It is, I will tell if anyone listening – who is a, a Reds fan and or golf fan, that it is the event that I circle on my calendar every year. It is the, so well done uh, at Belterra. You play golf, you're surrounded by Former players, local celebrities, the food is incredible. The silent auction is awesome. The you guys do such a good job of making it like a really really great experience. And then there's a show at night that I'm I'm very fortunate to be a part of, it, like in the smallest of of capacities. But it, I'm Josh. telling you, it is like if you can do it and and it's something you want to do, do it because it is the most fun that I have all year.
1: It, uh, well, you're, you're kind of saying, um, you know, early on, we didn't know Marty as well as we do now, all these years later. And Marty said, basically, if the golf round is longer than four and a half hours, I'm not coming back. If you guys take this too seriously and make it too stiff, I'm not coming. I mean, basically laid out the ground rules. And, uh, you know, I think over the first handful of years, especially after we moved to Belterra, uh, you know, the overnight is the other element that kind of yeah. makes it unique is – you know, people might golf on Sunday afternoon, they might golf on Monday morning, some might do both, but typically you're either going to come Sunday and then, you know, uh, stay for the dinner, the fabulous comedy uh, events that you and the likes of Bob Cavoyne the Hall of Fame, you know, radio genius have been able to put together for us. And, of course, you're, you're downplaying the role that you've played in delivering this and then the fact that you've stuck your neck out there to help us host and, and to perform live every year. To the same audience, which isn't easy, you know. <laughs> which is um, the worst. <laughs> you know, but I think it's always kind of, the, I, I, I feel like the events always sort of kept Marty's Marty's flavor, which is casual and fun and uh, self-deprecating, uh, but not too serious and really conversational and really accessible. You know, it, it, it is uh, it is so much fun. And the good news for us is that it's one of the, Handful of things, hopefully many things that Marty will continue to do. So even even though this September 22nd and 23rd at Belterra is literally just a handful of days away from his last broadcast, that Thursday afternoon uh, home game, you know, it's, it's not going to be as bittersweet as him signing off later that week because we know we'll be, you know, queuing it back up next year. Yeah. And
2: then Reds Fest, would that be the other quarter or the other quor-
1: part of the event? That's part of the events bucket. Then the other quarter is just the incredible work that Bill Reinberger, Dave Collins, and our corporate oh, yeah. sales, uh, corporate partnerships team does. You know, they, they have, you know, first of all, followed the rules of the Castellinis, which is you are going to uh, help the community fund and then the other incredible uh, nonprofit of the Reds, the Hall of Fame and Museum, which yeah. is best in class. Uh, so they they go out and help sell for us. They let us focus more and more on the programming, um, and allow us to stay out of some of the corporate weeds at least. I mean, we're obviously out there chasing uh, grants and gifts and that sort of thing. So really, the fourth bucket is is corporate and individual and and you know traditional nonprofit donation.
2: I know you got to go, and you're I mean you're like in such high demand. So I appreciate you being here. But can you just relay in your words what I think a lot of people may not appreciate in that our hall of fame our community fund the amenities that we have at the ballpark that you know i think a lot of times people get down on the, the everything that goes by the team's record right and i don't think that they realize that the reds they're first class like you said in every way and that the Hall of Fame is a Hall of Fame that other teams come to to say, how do you do this? And Reds Fest is an event that other teams, bigger teams come to and say, how do you do this? That's 100
1: percent right. And it hasn't changed. Uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, you know, Reds memories are my first memories. You know, uh, if I didn't work for the team, it, it wouldn't change the emotional connection that I feel for the team. And I, I can tell you that there hasn't been one day working for this ownership group where at any time if I took my employee hat off and, and put on my Reds fan hat, which I do plenty, that I wouldn't feel exactly the same, the, the sense of pride in this team that I grew up caring about and loving as a kid and as an adult, the way they go about things. This ownership group bought the team so that they could lift the profile of our region, not our city, our region. You know, they don't pocket the profit. They invest the profit back in, either into the ballpark experience or the payroll or the Hall of Fame or the community fund. That's what they do. And I think they understood early on that where sports was going as an industry, that if they did the right things, that the valuation would skyrocket or not skyrocket, but that it it would climb steadily, which it has. And they've earned every bit of that reward whenever... It is that they would get out, and I hope that's not for a long, long, long time. Because as a sports fan, we should be so lucky to have ownership that that wants to do the greater good. You know, they don't just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, fine, go out and do some community stuff. Yeah, fine, renovate the Hall of Fame. They pour every ounce of, you know, uh, of themselves into it, you know, Bob Castellini financially, creatively, Phil Castellini. I mean, they they were so engaged in the Hall of Fame process. They rebuilt that Hall of Fame, Rick Walls and his team, in four months. You know, the thing was $5.5 million. It's unbelievable. It's spectacular. It doesn't happen without what you described. Yeah. You know, um, Bob got up in front of the community in January of 06 and said, you know, we're going to bring championship baseball back. We're going to make the ballpark experience as, you know, as good as any. And we're going to invest in the community like no other. And you know what? You know, they went to the postseason three times from 10 through 13. You know, they built that team. I mean, would they go back and make every decision that they did in terms of personnel? Of course not. What team would? Right. You know, um, did they stick their necks out there to deliver every part of that promise? Absolutely. Can you control the baseball? You can't. You can't control injuries. You can't control the industry. It's much harder for the 15 smaller market teams. That's just a fact. You can't control that. What can they control? They can control the experience at the ballpark. They can control their investment around the ballpark and in the community. And to that level, I don't... I just don't think there's an ownership group that can touch this one.
2: And accessible. I mean, any given night, you'll see either one of them walking around, shaking hands, talking to
1: people. Yeah. And you know what? You don't want to be Susie Castellini after the Reds you know, give up a lead or after the Reds are on a losing streak because Bob takes it to heart. And when you're a fan and when it hurts you, there's something comforting about the fact that your owner feels it too. He yes. feels what you feel. He is struggling to get to sleep after tough losses the yeah. way that we are. And not to knock other types of owners, but I, I you know, uh, I'll, I'll take this one.
2: Yeah. My, uh, Michael Anderson said on here that the, the reason he quit tweeting is because he said, suck it, Cardinals, on Twitter once. Yeah. And, uh, and I told him, I said, I get why that the, your management would, you know, take issue with that. But as a fan, I love that the people in the front office are also fans. Oh, yeah. So, um, all right. Can you give us a word? I'm going, to guess, I'm going to guess I know what it is. But can you give us a word people will use as a coupon for the next week? I'll say Community. That's what I was going to guess. So uh, for the next week, uh, Community will save you 20% online and in-store. That's good until the next episode comes out. So uh, so use that. And then how can people f- – um, you mentioned Reds.com slash Community. You guys are on social media. Uh, is that the best way that people can yeah. find out about your events and learn how they can yeah. donate and participate and all the services you offer?
1: Yeah, at Reds Community on Twitter, uh, Reds Community on Facebook. Um, you can certainly uh, find out about us at Reds.com uh, slash community as well. And as you mentioned earlier, for those 18 and older in the state of Ohio, you can now play Split the Pot. Uh, whether or not you're at the ballpark uh, at reds5050.com.
2: There you go. And uh, selfishly, I will mention that um, all of our baseball themed shirts in our store. Yes. A percentage of that does go to the Reds community fund as well some of uh, some will also go to the player or uh, foundation's causes that are near and dear to those players but every shirt at least uh, some percentage of it does go to the community fund which so. is
1: another thing that you don't have to do and the fact that you do it uh, and and since these shirts are part of the Brenneman golf weekend is so cool I can't stand it
2: well, uh, you're a great friend. You do an amazing job. The city and the team are lucky to have you, and, uh, and we're lucky to have you on the podcast. Thank
1: you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Peter. Really appreciate it. Come on, people now. on your brother. Everybody get together. Try
0: to love one another right now. Charlie Frank. Did you know the Timberwolves were going to move to New Orleans? Sounds like it was pretty close to happening. In any case, uh, for more on the Reds Community Fund, simply go to mlb.com forward slash Reds forward slash community, and you can see photos, find out how to get involved, how to make a donation, uh, find out about Split the Pot. You can play that online now, and you can see all the things that they are involved in. If you haven't already, check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives, of course. Lots of great episodes back there. Matt Bischoff from Survivor, Gold Star CEO Roger David, Bill Donabedian, the guy that co founded and uh, still books Bunbury Music Festival, Greg Hamilton from WWE, John Keyswetter talking about WKRP, Amy Esbeck from Movies and TV, a Blue Ash native, I believe, and let me see Dean Gregory from Montgomery, and just lots of great episodes back there. Go back and listen to them all if you haven't already. And if there's someone you'd like us to have on the podcast, just drop us an email info at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line, and we'll try to track that person down. Be sure to tell your friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state, Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. You can find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have a lot of defunct teams, old shopping centers, restaurants, radio stations, and a section of old video games now, too, as well. It's, it's like Cincy Shirts, but uh, for those particular towns. And in case you missed it, the promo code for this episode is COMMUNITY. All one word, all uppercase all lowercase, doesn't matter. Either way works. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. And uh, let me see. Oh, you can also use that, of course, on our brick-and-mortar stores uh, at the over the Rhine, Hyde Park, and Loveland, of course. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for all the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye! <laughs>